0: and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue.
1: Tonight's scripture passage is 2 Samuel chapter six, verses one through 23. If you would like, take a moment to turn there. There are Bibles in your pew. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> Again, tonight's passage is 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 23. Please stand are able for the reading of God's Word. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Saul Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which called by the name of the Lord of Hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Eo, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart, the Ark of God, and Aho went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres, and harps, and tambourines, and, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Mechon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because of the ark beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Peres-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed obed enam and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of obed enam and all that belongs to him, because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of obed enam to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought the ark, brought up the ark to the, of the Lord, with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David, leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought... <coughs> And David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And the call, of the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of your death. This is the word of God for the people of God.
0: When I was uh, 21 years old, I came to believe that God was real, and I came to believe also that Jesus was the exact representation of who God was, and so I came to believe that Jesus was God incarnate, a God of love, but, um, and I imagine this is true of some of you as well, but it uh, it took a long time for me to actually enjoy reading the Old Testament, and maybe some of you are still there. And that, that's, that's understandable. Um, and the reason that I could barely read it was because of passages like this. I would start reading it, and I would hit something like this, and it would just, I would just have to stop. Because I didn't, this didn't compute with me in terms of what I understood God to be. And uh, then I read a book by R.C. Sproul, who has influenced probably some of you. R.C. S.P.R.U.L. is his last name. And it was called The Holiness of God. And that book that has had a huge impact on a lot of people Uh, And I read that book and I was even more offended than the Old Testament. uh, Because uh, it was partly about this passage. It concentrated on some very hard passages. Both in the Old and some of the New Testament. That had to deal with the the holiness of God. And what happens when sinful people come in contact with the holiness of God. And I even wrote down in the book on the margins. This is not the God I believe in. And... um, I couldn't handle the book because I don't think I could handle God's holiness. It was too disruptive to me. And in uh, in 1543, there was a great astronomer you've probably all heard of named Nicholas Copernicus, a Polish astronomer. And he said to the world of uh, scientists, actually, we uh, are not the center of everything. And the, the sun and the moon and the planets don't all go around us. It's the sun that is actually the center of things. And we are orbiting the sun. And that was disturbing and disconcerting to the authorities. Even the church condemned that idea um, because it completely displaced us from the center of everything. And that was very hard for people, even the church. And there was a line from that book by R.C. Spool that really had that effect on me. And, uh, It displaced me from the center of my own mental universe. And here's the line. It said, it was about this story. And it said, Uzzah, Uzzah's problem. Uzzah's the guy that touched the ark and died. Uzzah's problem was that he thought the ground was more defiled than his hand. And that line just completely rocked me. I didn't like the story to begin with. And then to to hear him say that Uzzah's problem was that he thought the ground was more defiled than his own hand. uh, It felt like an offense to human dignity. And I thought to myself, surely surely we are not that sinful, that that could be true. I mean, less clean than the dirt is what he's saying. And and so I want to look at that paradigm shift uh, of moving from us being at the center of our thinking, which is how we always normally go back to, uh, and then this idea um, of God being the center of everything. It's a a total paradigm shift. It's it's changing your thinking entirely. And and it it needs to happen on a regular basis. Because we we always come back to the idea that we are the center of everything. And the holiness of God puts us in orbit around God. Instead of everything orbiting around us. So here's the context. First point, us, the center of everything. Uh, The context is that King David has just taken the throne. We saw that last week. Uh, in a not so nice way. And the very first thing that he does when he takes the throne is, as, as one should, he begins to consolidate power and unite the north and the south. He's already been trying to do this, uh, but now his, his big move is, I'm, gonna, I'm going to establish a new capital city. And not Hebron, which is down in the south more, but I'm going to move it to Jerusalem, which is more in the middle. And it happens to be on a great fortress position's fantastic. So he moves the capital to Jerusalem. He takes Jerusalem from the Jebusites in a pretty amazing way. You can look at that in chapter 5. And then his, his biggest act of establishing Jerusalem as, as the capital is that he, um, he then um, brings the Ark. He brings the Ark to Jerusalem and therefore saying, uh, God is king. God rules over Jerusalem because God is enthroned on the Ark. So he's making the ark um, the center of his capital, Jerusalem. Um, and the ark, by the way, you might ask yourself, well, where was the ark? The ark should have been in the capital anyway. Well, it was not in the capital. The ark was, the ark was in this pagan territory, this, this, uh, this territory of the, uh, of the Philistines, where it was languishing for 50 years, just kind of sitting out there uh, in a field collecting spiderwebs and dust. The last king, Saul, who really was very godless, he he just kind of forgot about the Ark. The Ark was supposed to be the center of Jewish life. When the the Jews moved around uh, in the wilderness, the Ark was always at the center of the entire people, and God reigned from the Ark. And so David takes this dramatic mission to go and get the Ark, and that's a good thing. And look how many people he took, uh, verse 2, he took 30,000 choice fighters. Obviously he didn't need that many, but... It was a way of saying, the ark is the center of my new capital, which is the center of my entire new nation, the nation of Israel. And you might say, well, on the one hand, the ark was just a piece of furniture. What's the big deal? Uh, it, was a, it was a thing about the size of this piece of furniture right here with the bread and the cups on it. Uh, that's about the size of it. It was covered with gold. It was made of acacia wood. It was topped with these two giant angels that were kind of facing each other, and they were bowing down. And, uh, and uh, it, was, it was not magical. It didn't glow with electricity. It didn't have a force field around it or anything like that. It was just a normal box. But on the other hand, uh, it was actually where God was enthroned. And you see that in verse 2. The Lord of hosts sits enthroned on the cherubim. Which is another way of saying that the glory cloud hovered over it. And again, it's not because the ark is magical. It's because God chose to make his rule from that place... And uh, the glory cloud is something called the Shekinah glory. Uh, that's the Hebrew word for it. And it was kind of like a shining cloud of uh, maybe a giant swarm of fireflies that are always blinking. That's kind of the way I picture the glory cloud. And again, it's not magical. Um, it's just the, it's the way that God chose to make himself visible to Israel. That shows that I am, I am the king. I am with you. I am with my people. And so in a sense, the... The ark was the holiest object in the universe. It was the place where heaven and earth met. And therefore, it was, uh, it was to be handled with great caution and great care because that's where the energy of divinity, the holy energy of divinity was. I was once driving behind a semi, a big old semi truck, and it had a yellow toxic waste symbol on it. It was one of those round ones, one of those cylindrical ones. And that was very that was kind of nerve-wracking that it had that big symbol. And then it also had a red skull and crossbone symbol just in case you missed that one. So it was really dangerous. And then it had this big all caps letters, uh, danger, hazardous materials. So all these different ways of saying, this is not to be taken lightly. And so I gunned it and got around that thing because I did not want to get too close to that. And the Ark is um, something that you had to handle with great care because of the weightiness, the holiness of it. And so God gave very specific directions more than once, very clearly, in the Bible about how you move the ark around. Because this is the throne of God. And you had to have these two poles. And it had to have these little, uh, these things you put the poles through. Four of those on the four points of the ark. And you had four specific priests that were holding it like this on those poles. So it had to be carried that way. It could never be touched. And it could never even be looked at. It had to be covered with this beautiful uh, cloth all over it. And so this was not a secret. This was known to the Israelites. This is the throne of God. This is the center of their people. And so uh, look at verse 3. It says they carried the ark of God on an, uh, on an ox cart, um, like a flatbed trailer. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the ox cart. That's not a lot of respect for the Ark. Uh, these two guys, Uzzah and Ohio, are just kind of random teenagers maybe who happen to be the sons of Abinadab where the Ark happened to be languishing and they were just driving it down this dirt road on uh, this ox cart, this cart of wild oxen. Not a lot of respect for the Ark. It's like one of those uh, you know, rickety trucks on i forty. <laughs> that they've got this stuff, the pile of junk is kind of tied down barely and stuff's flying off the back. That's the way the ark is being dealt with here. Um, there's, there are no priests involved. There's no covering. Uh, there are no poles. There's no respect at all for the holiness of God. And, and, and you have to ask yourself, what would, what would happen if God just continued to let people think of himself that way, as a piece of trash in a way, as something to be blown off? And it's not like God's being petty here. Um, It's not like God is worried about his piece of furniture getting dirty. That's not the point at all. Uh, The point is uh, that there was no respect being shown here. It was kind of like if you ask your child, um, would you please clean your plate that you just put? Uh, You just, uh, you know, you had milk in there, sitting there all day. There's milk in your bowl. And you just kind of laid it down on the counter where the dog could get to it. And you wouldn't put it, just put it in... Uh, the sink at least put water in it you know, I'm not even asking you to clean it and put it in the, in the dishwasher just put it on some place the dog can't get it and you ask them 10 times to do the same thing and you come back the 11th and nothing has happened and you're frustrated with the child and you're not frustrated about the bowl it's not about the bowl it's not about the piece of furniture it's about the attitude that the Israelites as a whole were showing towards God and God let them get a long way Fifteen miles of disrespect. This ark just sitting there on an ox cart, you know, moving around like this. Everybody's looking at it. Um, God was being very, very gracious. But at some point, it just went too far. And the level of negligence of divinity became dangerous for them. Dangerous for them. And so in verse 6, when they came to this threshing floor of Nikon, which maybe had some bumps in it. Uh, the the ark tilts over. Uzzah puts his hand out. Uh, the oxen stumble, and it's just ridiculous that that could be happening. Not entirely Uzzah's fault. More like a a general like systemic error that he paid the price for. But he was part of. It. But he paid the price for this general error of the whole country in neglecting the ark. Um, I think about if you ask if you ask your husband. Uh, if you if made this really elaborate uh, turkey for Thanksgiving, you're going to take it to your in-laws' house, and you're trying to impress your um, your mother-in-law. And you made this beautiful turkey, put it on this gorgeous platter. Um, you give it to your husband and said, "Be be very careful how you carry that turkey to the car." And you look out the window, and he's like, you know, got it like this, and he's kind of dancing around. and You watch it fall. Um, that's nothing compared to the way that they are treating the art. And so in verse 7 it says, the, ang- the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down. And that, that is the place where you kind of rise up and say, what, what in the world? First of all, I didn't think God got angry. Uh, A. And then B. Um, I can't believe he killed this guy. He struck him down. These are active words. The anger was kindled. It, it, it built... Uh, and again, this is one commentary said it was static electricity built up on the ark because it was going back and forth uh, on the ox cart. And maybe the gold or something like that created this buildup. And that's, that's ridiculous. That's missing the whole point. The point of the story is that there was anger that struck like light. And so it's got, you can't get around the challenge here of the holiness of God. And um, you, well you can... Uh, you can get angry like David was angry in verse 8. He was angry uh, because the Lord had broken out. And you can you can choose to think about God as like an alcoholic parent uh, that's just ready to fly off the handle, or a petty tyrant, and one little tiny detail is missing, and he he's off with his head. You can, you can choose to think of God that way, or you can let this challenge you and dislodge you and make you realize that God is that there's a very holy person uh, and righteous, omnipotent being in the universe and that you're not the center of the universe and that this is the center of the universe and that it's, it's, it's more important for you to know that than to live it's, it's more important for you to acknowledge the holiness of God than for you to even be alive um, you, can, you can let God be the sun and you orbiting around God or you can try to uh, control God and have God orbit around you and your sensibilities and your little mental picture of things um, where God just kind of comes up in the east, he brightens your day, he keeps you warm, he goes down in the west and it's like clockwork and you have control. God is kind of blessing your nice little comfortable life. Uh, But the good news is that God is entirely committed, you could say violently committed, to being the center of your life. And to having, to, he's committed to having a solar system of people. This would be the church. People that orbit around him as the planets and the stars and the, the asteroids, the comets, the moons, orbiting around God. That's, that's what he wants. And he's about to inaugurate his reign in Israel here. That's one important part of why this happens, is because he's about to inaugurate his reign, and he cannot have them thinking of him as, as a pagan God that they can control. The people around them all thought that the gods were things you manipulated. And if you gave them sacrifices and if you prayed to them a certain way, you could control the gods. And God has to make it very clear I am not an idol like Shemash, uh, Molech, Baal. I'm not one of these idols. Uh, I'm not a genie. And I'm not manageable and I'm not in your control. You can see David's thinking about God um, in this kind of weird experiment he carries out where he leaves the ark in this poor guy's house, Obed-Edom. How would you like to be Obed-Edom? And you've just seen Uzzah struck down and now the the king is like, I'm going to see if this thing works or not. I'm going to leave it in your house. And I guess David's thought was, if he dies, then it's not working and we're just going to leave it there. But if it works, and his house is blessed, well, then maybe I'll bring it back into Jerusalem. So even that kind of magical thinking you see in David. And in verse 12, you see the people also are superstitious. They're elated that the ark blessed this guy's house. They say, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. You know, they're like the little children with some kind of electric toy that begins to work when they hit it just the right way. They're superstitious. They think the ark is magical. They're using the Ark like uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? The way that the Nazis want to use the Ark is as they want to weaponize the Ark. They think that if if they can uh, find it, uh, then they can defeat armies with it. They can use it like lasers coming out and melting people's faces. And so they are trying to use it for their own ends. David might want it for a different end to heal and bless, but he's still the same exact thing. He's using the ark as a tool for his own purposes. And a lot of times we pray to God that way. We treat God that way. And we think if if I can pray long enough and if I can get enough people to pray and maybe if they fast and if we pray loud enough and if we cry enough, then God is going to have to act because we can kind of twist his arm like that. And we try to manufacture a kind of a spirituality where someone will be healed or things will go well with me. Or things will go with my child. Um, like Harry Potter, you know, casting spells. And if we, if we say the words the right way, if we enunciate the right inflection, or if we twist our arm the right way, you know, then the spell will work. And, um, and we, we treat God that way. That if we do all these things the right way, then, then she will be healed. And if she's not healed, then we're like, well, did you really believe? Did you really have faith? Did you really pray enough? Were you really close to God? And it's just this quid pro quo kind of relationship where you're the center and God is going around you. And and holiness shatters that. Uh, It's where you have to deal with God as a person and not an appliance. And I was once talking to a guy who was about to get married, and he had been addicted to pornography. And he was very insightful about this. He was very worried that on his honeymoon that uh, he would have a difficult time with intimacy with his new wife because he had always controlled all of his intimacy. And it had whatever, the touch of the screen, he could manipulate intimacy however he wanted. He was in total control of the whole thing. And it was a certain package he had to have. And he realized when he's going to be with his wife, he's dealing with a person. And he is not in control of that. And uh, he wasn't sure what it would be like to be with a real human. And a lot of times we treat God as this object, this thing that we control, that spirituality is about this. And the great American novelist George Saunders says that each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions that we're the center of the universe. And that our personal story is the main story, and the most interesting story, and really, the only story. That your story is the only story. And point two is that Uzzah's death is a shocking reminder that you are not the only story. That there's a much bigger story to the universe than your 70-so years of life. And that those are not the main event. And the most important thing about life is not to get out alive. In fact, nobody gets out of life alive. And your life or death is not the most important thing there is. And that's point two, when God becomes the center of everything. And the first thing that happens when David comes to his census, three months have passed, the house of Obed-Edom is being blessed, and somewhere in there, David had a, a shift. And so when he gets the ark the next time, guess what? They've got the four priests, they've got the poles... It doesn't say that in this passage, but it says that in Chronicles. They're doing it the right way. They show respect to God. And in verse 13, you see this. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, which shows you right there, they're bearing it the right way. Uh, They've moved six steps, and David's like, hold on a minute. We've got to make a sacrifice. We haven't had a sacrifice for 50 years in our country because the ark hasn't even been here for 50 years. So we're going to have to make a sacrifice And the animal sacrifice is a radical dislocation from being the center of everything. Because you're taking a very expensive animal and you're slaughtering it for no reason at all. And if you watch this innocent, beautiful oxen killed, and if you see the carcass there and you smell the blood, uh, it's a very powerful depiction. This is what my sin is like. This is what I deserve. It's It's an encounter with holiness. And it shows... It shows us that, uh, that David is saying that God is now the weighty one, and I am dust in the wind. I am, I am nothing. And you might think that that would be a depressing moment to encounter holiness that way, but if, if you've ever had a moment like that where you have the, the holiness of God come and, and hit you, uh, you realize that, that it's not depressing. You might call it somber or very serious. But it actually releases joy. It's like you become the planet Mars rather than trying to be the sun. And uh, you can just kind of suddenly begin to freely dance around orbiting God, not in control of things. There's a, there's a liberation to holiness that you see in verse 14 where it says that David danced before the Lord with all of his might. David danced with all of his might before the Lord. I love that, that image. Um, I don't know what all of his might looks like or what that would look like today, but I picture a guy at a wedding. I've been to four weddings the last month and I, I picture a guy at a wedding who's totally out of control. He had a little bit too much to drink and he takes off, you know, his jacket and loosens his tie and he's like break dancing. I mean, I've I've seen this, uh, kind of break dancing in the middle, doing moves. He has no business doing probably pulling a muscle and all those people around him, like clapping and just egging him on. That's, that's the way I picture David in his linen ephod. Like he put on a different suit to dance. And he is dancing with all of his might. He's like opening his wallet and just throwing around bills. It says in verse 19, David distributed to the whole multitude of Israel, all the men and women, cakes of bread and meat and cinnamon rolls. And he's just out of control. He's, he's so excited. And uh, it says in verse 20 that Michal, his wife, uh, is indignant. Which shows how humiliating his dance must have been. That his wife is so indignant. And she sneers at him for losing control. Verse 20 is just dripping with sarcasm. How the king of Israel has honored himself today. And she rebukes him. Right in the middle of his wild dance, she rebukes him. And David uh, just stops. Looks up at her. Stares a long time. And says in verse 21, I will celebrate before the Lord and he just goes right back to dancing he just continues to dance and then da- and then Michael says in verse in verse 20 uh, you're making a fool of yourself she says uh, you've uncovered yourself before the eyes of servants like a vulgar fellow shamelessly uncovering himself that's very that's very harsh there's some very disgusting Hebrew words in that statement um, she's slurring his character and David's like you haven't seen the half of it and uh, he says in verse 21, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And he just continues. So in the face of all that, um, he just continues to revel in the holiness of God. And I think Michael's reaction uh, just shows us that, uh, you know, that holiness is, is like kryptonite to the self, to wanting to preserve dignity. Uh, holiness doesn't allow us to do that. Uh, That's part of what being in control is, to continue to to present this image. Forbes magazine uh, had an article about how to manage millennials, and it said that our culture is addicted to recognition, needing other people's approval, publicly promoting themselves, building images from their own personal life experiences. And holiness is, is like an attack on that. It's lethal to that. To that whole project of recognition, approval, Public promotion, building an image of yourself, holiness just wrecks the whole thing. And it makes people do silly things, uh, th- things that are embarrassing. Um, it's, it's actually hard to enter into a space that is filled with holiness. I know we've all experienced that, where we try to, get, there's a space where there's all this holiness, and it's very hard to enter into that space. I, I remember as a new Christian, even after I became to believe in Christ, I, I had a really hard time entering into a church because it felt just really thick with uh, this holiness, like a force field or something. My ego couldn't break through into that space. And even if I was in a church, I had to sit at the very back. I couldn't get close. Uh, I I couldn't participate in the worship. People were raising their hands. They were praying out loud. I couldn't. That was like way too much for me. And so I just kind of pulled back. And Michal is the same way. His wife, she, she can't enter into the worship. She's like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son where the The father kills a fattened calf for his young son when he comes back, uh, showing all this grace. He's so excited. And the older brother, who's been good his whole life, won't come in because he's managing his his ego. The older brother's like, I'm not going into that party for my son. He won't join in the dance. He won't join in the the joy of holiness. And that's what's going on with Mikal. Now, she's got a reason to be bitter. She has reason for that, but she still is bitter. In verse 16, she looks out the window... She sees David leaping and dancing, and she despised him in her heart. She's bitter. And when you're, bit, when you're, when you're hurt, uh, it's very hard to enter into a, a group of people that are, that are filled with the joy of holiness. It's very hard. And again, you, we have to have sympathy for Michal. He, he ripped her away from her husband. This was last week. Uh, he's made her one of his several wives. Her bitterness makes sense, and yet she's still, she is still choosing to hurt herself. Uh, it's, it's no excuse for her to say, I, I'm just going to reject holiness and I'm not going to enter into a space of people worshiping because I'm too hurt. I mean, she's the one hurting herself. There, there's the potential there for that gorgeous unraveling of a self, and she does not take that. There's, there's a potential there of just a jolt of absolutely massive and overwhelming things that would dislodge her and she won't do it. And that could be true of you. You could be in a place or you know someone where there's just too much... Bitterness to enter into the, the joy of being out of control and dislodged by God's holiness. In, uh, in Western Ireland, there's this big, uh, huge parking lot and a gift shop. And uh, we drove up to this thing, gigantic parking lot, huge, elaborate gift shop, really uh, nice inside, really fancy, big old sign. And you're there, and there's a, there's a bunch of sheep around it, and there's some big green fields, and you're like, what? What is this doing here? And, uh, and then 300 yards to the left of that parking lot, um, there is this massive, uh, immense cliff that goes 700 feet straight down. Right from the edge of that green field, just black sheer rock stone that plummets right into these massive waves. Some of the largest waves on earth. And you look down and there, there's these huge waves just crashing up on really dramatic rock formations. It's called the Cliffs of Moher. And, uh, and when I saw that thing, uh, I kind of had to stop walking. It was so dramatic. I mean, 700 feet is not that high, but if you just see it out, coming out of nowhere right down into the ocean with giant waves, that does something. And I had to eventually lie completely flat on my stomach. I've mentioned this before. And I had to kind of crawl up and just peer over with my eyes. That's the only way I could look at it. it was, I kind of don't like heights anyway, but I was just... I felt out of control. I was trembling as I was, gra- I was grabbing the, uh, the grass very tightly. And, and that's just nature. That's not even the most dramatic part of this natural world. Imagine something supernatural, like the Cliffs of Moher, where being in his presence is so massive and overwhelming because of holiness that you have that kind of reaction. You know, God came to the earth which was very difficult for him, uh, like a lightning strike. Um, and he didn't do it to warm our lives or to prevent people from dying. Uh, he, he hasn't prevented anyone from dying. Um, everyone's going to die. Uzzo was just one of many, many, many people who died. And he didn't do that to just make our lives a little better or prevent us from dying. Uh, he did that to bring in holiness and to shock us and displace us from the center of our lives. And to show us this fearsome love um, that normally we, we have very little awareness of. And uh, if, if the ark was the presence of God on planet Earth at that moment in the history of the world, then we believe now that there's no need for the ark. The ark is lying somewhere, I don't know where, maybe in Iraq today. Who knows? Buried under some sand. But I do know that if you got the ark out, it would not destroy people like it does in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It would, it would be a box. That's all it is. The, the presence of God is, has shifted to his son, to Jesus. Jesus was the glory cloud. And when Jesus came and people touched him, they didn't die. Uh, rather than their sin killing them, it, it killed him. And he, he absorbed, the Holy One absorbed all of our sin. And that is ultimately who God is. The story of Azza shows us his holiness, but ultimately, in the very end, we know uh, that when God came here, he, he didn't come here to destroy people and to blast people like lasers. He came here to bear our sins. And so at this table, uh, we see the, the fearsome and holy love of God.